We took a pause from the book of Daniel two weeks ago, Nathan preaching those three visions of the glory of the Lord. And last week, being Father's Day, we had looked at the prodigal son, being reminded that God rejoices when sinners repent. And we take these, those two sermons together and we really see the contrast between God and man. The glory of God and the sinfulness of man. And yet the story doesn't stop there, praise God. Because of his love for us, he sends his son to redeem us. And even though there's this unbridgeable chasm between God and man, between holy and righteous God and sinful man, God himself, the God-man, Jesus Christ, bridges the gap we could not traverse for ourselves. He makes the bridge so we can get to the Father, so we can be in relationship with God. This morning we're going to look at a familiar, another familiar story from the book of Daniel. The Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. A favorite story in Sunday school. The kids love this one. You probably love it too. It's a, it's a wonderful story of God's deliverance. Impossible situation. God delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from that furnace. And if we're not careful, we turn the story into a story about how we can overcome any obstacle as Christians. Because as we've been saying from the pulpit, and I can't say it enough times, our sinful nature makes everything about us, makes every story about us. Where am I in the story? How am I the hero of the story? And we get drawn immediately to the people in the story because we're people and that's where we live and breathe and move and have our existence. And then we would miss the entire point of the story. The title of the sermon this morning, The Audacious Pride of Man, The Awesome Power of God. It's not so much a story about these three intrepid young men in exile. It's a story about a man, Nebuchadnezzar, just a man, who happened to become, by God's providence, the most powerful man on earth at that time. The Babylonian Empire huge empire engulfing most of the known world at the time and it really went to his head and frankly if you and I were in the same position it would go to our head as well everybody fearing you waiting on you hand and foot treating you as if you were God this is Nebuchadnezzar And yet, because we have the Word of God, 
As we like to say, we have the curtain peeled back and we see who's really in charge of the entire situation and how foolish and sinful Nebuchadnezzar begins to look to us that he thinks he can thwart the plans of Almighty God. This is an important story for us. I've already alluded it, alluded to it this morning, how much we need to come and hear about our great and awesome God, how much we need a huge vision of God. One of the big mistakes made in children's ministry or people shepherding their children is they try to shrink God down to something that the children can understand and manage. That is the wrong tack. They need a big view of awesome God. Not so much so that you leave them completely in the dark to where they think, what's the point? But shrinking God down to human-sized characters for our children to be able to relate to Him isn't going to instill the proper fear of the Lord and worship of God. Yes, it's hard even at my age to understand God's otherliness and His imminence simultaneously. How can this, this awesome God who seems so unattainable be so close? And that's the mystery and miracle of the incarnation that deity took on human flesh and dwelt among us and then died for us and made a way for us to be able to approach the throne of God with confidence and even call God Abba Father. It's one of my favorite books on preaching by John Piper, The Supremacy of God in Preaching. For, for a verbose guy like Piper, it's rather thin. Which is nice. You, that means that he consolidated his thoughts down to the essentials. Let me read you a portion to set up the sermon this morning. People are starving for the greatness of God. Did you know you're starving? People are starving out there. But most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. And I understand that because people make counseling appointments and they come in and nobody comes in saying, I am starving for the greatness of God. They think their problem lies in circumstances here on earth, maybe unhappy with a child or a, a spouse, whatnot, struggling with a disease. All of these things are real struggles. I don't mean to belittle anybody's suffering. But at the end of the day, the remedy is a big dose of the greatness of God because then all of our earthly problems shrink down to size. Right? Everything gets put in perspective. The circumstance doesn't change, but the perspective changes. And that's the first step to dealing with any of your problems is to put them in perspective. The majesty of God is an unknown cure. There are far more popular prescriptions on the market, but the benefit of any other remedy is brief and shallow. Preaching that does not have the aroma of God's greatness may entertain for a season, but it will not touch the hidden cry of the, the soul, show me thy glory. At the end of the day, that's, that's what we need. 
he talks about a sermon series on the holiness of God. He says, so I preached on the holiness of God and did my best to display the majesty and glory of such a great and holy God. I gave not one word of application to the lives of our people. Application is essential in the normal course of preaching. But I felt led that day to make a test with the passionate portrayal of the greatness of God in and of itself meet the needs of people. I didn't realize that not long before this Sunday, one of the young families of our church discovered that their child was being sexually abused by a close relative. It was incredibly traumatic. They were there that Sunday morning and sat under that message. I wonder how many advisors to us pastors today would have said, Pastor Piper, can't you see your people are hurting? Can't you come down out of the heavens and get practical Don't you realize what kind of people sit in front of you on Sunday? Some weeks later, I learned the story. The husband took me aside one Sunday after a service. John, these have been the hardest months of our lives. Do you know what has gotten me through? The vision of the greatness of God's holiness that you gave me the first week of January. It has been the rock we could stand upon. The greatness and the glory of God are relevant. It does not matter if surveys turn up a list of perceived needs that does not include the supreme greatness of the sovereign God of grace. That is the deepest need. Our people are starving for God. It is not the job of the Christian preacher to give people moral or psychological pep talks about how to get along in the world. When that is needed, someone else can do it. But most of our people have no one, no one in the world to tell them week in and week out about the supreme beauty and majesty of God. So let's go to the book of Daniel. And while our humanness is craving to find out what is life like in exile and how does one live in exile. I preached on that a few weeks ago, kind of that we're living in exile here as Christians. But we want to get specific. God said to build homes and have families and plant gardens and I want to go to the book of Daniel and see examples of what that looks like. And we don't get those examples. We get story after story after story of the great God of the universe confronting the arrogance of Babylon's emperor. Apparently, this is what God thinks we need to hear. We're craving for 10 steps to a happier life. And certainly we could sit together as Christians and go to God's word and and glean practical wisdom. But of all places, you would think the book of Daniel, where you're describing a people living in exile, may give us some formulas or some more practical wisdom here. And this is what God says we need to hear. He is in control. He is in control. He is in control. This is a message God 
wants us to hear the women this summer are going through a story about God being in control. And after the six weeks are over, they're going to need another series on God is in control because we forget and we get sucked back into everyday life and everyday worries and everyday concerns. And so I'm with Pastor Piper. We need a great big view of God. Remember in in chapter 1, there was the showdown where uh, Daniel and his friends were told to eat from the king's table, but they didn't want to eat food offered to idols. And there was a bit of a test. It almost kind of reminds me of the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel. We'll put your gods over here, and we'll put the true God over here, and we'll see who is indeed real and strong. And at the end of the the 10 days, Daniel and his friends were not only physically healthier, but they had 10 times the wisdom of their peers, and they were all promoted to positions of authority. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a disturbing dream, and he can't interpret it, and he says, bring all the wise men and counselors, and they have to tell me what my dream is, and then interpret it. And of course, nobody could do that. And Daniel and his friends go to their knees in prayer, realizing only the true God can reveal the meaning of visions and dreams. And indeed, God gives Daniel not only the dream in detail, but the interpretation. And this was Nebuchadnezzar's response. Look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 47. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face. Hey, isn't that what we saw people doing when they got a vision of Christ? Isaiah fell on his face. Ezekiel fell on his face. The Apostle John fell on his face. But look who he falls on his face in front of. And he paid homage or homage to Daniel. Why? Because he doesn't have a relationship with the God of the universe. He falls down on his face before Daniel and he gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. This is a people used to worshiping idols. They needed a picture of something. They needed a statue to worship. And so Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know Daniel's God, but Daniel is a proxy. He's a He's there, he's real, he's in the flesh. Burn incense to Daniel because Daniel's God is great. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar recognizing Daniel's God is great, but not ready to call him my God and relinquish his authority in the face of this almighty God. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. You may know great theology about God, but until you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, He's not your God. You could be sitting in this room today. Well, of course I'm a Christian. You know, 85% of Americans still call themselves Christian. No way! No way our country is the way it is with 85% truly bowing the knee to Christ. Which tells me there are many who say they 
know Christ, but really they've just been told their whole life, of course you're a Christian. You live in Kern County. Of course you're a Christian. You're from the South. My friends in seminary from the South. So hard to evangelize in the South. Everybody knows Jesus, but nobody lives like they know him. And so... So really, you wanted to leave the South and come to Los Angeles to go to seminary? And they said, well, at least people in L.A. know that they don't know God. They brag about it. However, the unregenerate heart will always place man back on the podium. They might acknowledge God for a second, but until your heart's been changed and you humble yourself before the true and living God... It won't be too long before you put man back up on the pedestal. And literally, Daniel, excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar puts a man up on a pedestal. He makes a statue, an image, a golden image, because in his dream that Daniel interpreted, there was this human figure, and part of it was made of gold, and part was made of bronze, and and you remember the story, but the the part made of gold represented Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian empire. So he builds this image of gold. Keep in mind, this is 16 years later. This is 16 years later. And again, we get no details about what happened in those 16 years. I kind of would love to know what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel were doing for those 16 years. Did they, t- did they take a wife? Are they married? Do they have children now? What are their jobs? What does life look like? And God doesn't give us those details. This is the important thing he wants us to know. 16 years later, Nebuchadnezzar has forgotten the lesson. So the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. This would be a very tall, very skinny statue. So what we believe is that a big portion of the statue was a pedestal and then the human figure on top. But people would have been able to see it for miles around because it was built on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So not much hill country around there. So this is the probably the tallest structure for miles around and it's plated in gold. So you can imagine that Middle Eastern sun bouncing off this statue. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. This is the who's who of Babylon. He tells everyone, I don't care how important you think you are, Stop what you're doing and come to this ceremony. This is the audacious pride of man. And the herald proclaimed aloud to everybody assembled around this idol. You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, Trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. The words in the original for these various instruments come from different 
ancient languages which tell us these instruments come from all the different people groups and nations that Nebuchadnezzar defeated. He's got the whole orchestra there playing. The pomp and circumstance is is, uh, preposterous, really. What human being deserves such a ceremony? And he says, "At at the sound of the music, you are to fall down and worship the image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have to bow down, so we understand by extension that this is worship of Nebuchadnezzar. If it was a worship of a certain god, then Nebuchadnezzar would be falling down in worship as well. This is nothing short of self-adulation. We have a word for this, megalomaniacal. This guy is the narcissist of all narcissists. And he is the most powerful man on the planet at the time. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down. And we find out from the story that it's not like uh, everybody noticed that there was three guys not bowing. There's so many people at the ceremony that it was a couple of Chaldeans who snitched on them. So don't get a picture in your head of a room this size and everyone's bowing and three people are standing up. The crowd was so enormous that Nebuchadnezzar didn't see the three people not bowing down. Those jealous of them went and reported to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, there's three guys who won't bow down. I know the question right now in your mind might be, where's Daniel? Where's Daniel? It's one of those favorite theological puzzles that seminary students spend way too much time debating. He's not here. There's the answer. He's not here. Maybe he was sent away on official business. Maybe he was standing next to the king and everybody in the king's royal box didn't need to bow down. We don't know. I I believe that the reason he's not there in God's providence is because we would see Daniel being the hero of all these stories and we would begin to think that Daniel is the hero of the book of Daniel. And we would lose the fact that God is the hero of the book of Daniel. The contrast being made here is between God and Nebuchadnezzar. God and Nebuchadnezzar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there to show us what our proper response ought to be. So yes, they they are heroes, so to speak, but heroes deliver, and they didn't deliver anyone. So they wouldn't bow down, and, and Nebuchadnezzar throws a fit. I mean, just one of those royal tantrums. You would think that a man who thinks that highly about himself wouldn't be so upset that these three Jews didn't bow down. It shows you just how insecure, arrogant people really are. 
They can't stand to hear that three out of 300,000 wouldn't bow down. And so he brings them in and he, he says, Now if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigons, uh, the psaltery and bagpipe and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And then in this poetic irony foreshadowing, and what God is there who could deliver you out of my hands? By the way, this is, this is worship reserved for God. Even the language here. Listen to these New Testament verses. For this reason also God highly exalted him, Jesus. Highly exalted Jesus after Jesus humbled himself on the cross. That's who God exalts is the humble. Not people like Nebuchadnezzar. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, this is Jesus, to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So here's Nebuchadnezzar saying, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will fall down and worship me. This is worship reserved for Almighty God. But the three friends stand fast. Interesting, Daniel's name in the Hebrew means God is my judge. And even though they changed all of their names to Babylonian names, this kind of becomes the label for all of Daniel's friends. We don't care how powerful you think you are. God is our judge. We don't care what you are going to do to us. God is our judge. Here's the proper response in the face of such blasphemous pride. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, I'm in Daniel 3.16 here, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Nebuchadnezzar was giving them time to think about how terrible it would be to be thrown into this fiery furnace. And they said, we don't need time to think. We, we know we have our answer for you. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... In other words, if not from the fiery furnace, he'll deliver us in another way. There's, there's faith here. It, this is an early theology of the afterlife. Obviously, the resurrection is more thoroughly and more robustly taught in the New Testament. But there is a faith, a belief that, sure, you can destroy our bodies... 
And we believe our God can deliver us from this immediate trial. But if not, he'll deliver us from the more important trial. Because God is our judge. We will not bow the knee to you. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Reminds me of Peter who denied Jesus three times on the night of Jesus' trial. And in fact, denied Jesus in the face of a lowly servant girl for a guy with a lot of braggadocious machismo, Peter. I will die for you. Couldn't even look a slave girl in the face and admit that he was a follower of Jesus. But then later in his life, when God restores him, when Jesus restores him, he's preaching. He's the primary preacher in the book of Acts until Paul comes on the scene. He says in Acts chapter 5, they say, they beat them and say, don't preach Christ anymore. And Peter says, Are we supposed to listen to man and not God? And they beat beat him, release him, and he immediately goes back to preaching. Jesus said, fear not those who can only kill the body and not the soul. Instead, fear God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. This is the kind of attitude Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had and this should be our attitude and you can only have this attitude if you know God and have a personal relationship with him in our case on this side of the cross through faith in Jesus Christ so here's the awesome power of God on display Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste and he said to his high officials Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? Remember, they heated the furnace up seven times hotter than normal. It was so hot that the guards burned up trying to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. And while they're looking on, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not catching fire. And there's a fourth guy in there with them. And he's glowing. Was it not three men we cast bound in the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Either this is an angel of the Lord protecting Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, or it is the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Christ. This could be... Christ himself protecting Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Once again, Nebuchadnezzar is temporarily humbled. Temporarily humbled. Sorry, small font. Daniel 3.28, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. 
Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue, there's that language again, tribe, tongue, and nation, that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. So he's astounded. He reminds me of the people in the New Testament who saw Jesus perform miracles, but they wouldn't put their faith in him. Listen, he just says... He makes a law that says nobody shall say anything offensive about their God. He doesn't say everybody shall worship this true God, myself included. It's a distant admirer of God. Wow, your God's pretty neat. Look at how he delivered you. Let's add him to the pantheon of of gods we have here. And we'll give him the title, Great Deliverer. But he's still not bowing the knee to the true God. He doesn't know God, and he doesn't love God. Right? This is the great command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Lots of people know facts about God. Lots of people may even admire God. But the difference between those people who have a relationship with God and those who don't is love. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't love this God. He doesn't fear this God. There's no room for pride at the cross. There's no room for Nebuchadnezzar's at the foot of the cross. Or as one preacher put it, your big, fat, prideful head won't fit through the narrow gate. Broad is the path that leads to destruction. Plenty of room for egos on that path. We get to Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar forgets his place. And I I left the story out in between here. Uh, For the sake of time, here's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar has another vision. And once again calls on the wise people of the kingdom to come interpret the vision. And of course, only Daniel has the interpretation. And in this vision... There's this mighty tree, but it's cut down to the stump. And then around the tree is an iron band. And he says, what does this mean? And and Daniel, by this time, has grown fond of this king. They've spent a lot of time together. And perhaps he sees Nebuchadnezzar moving closer and closer and closer to a relationship with the Most High God. You have people like this in your life, do you not? They're, they're not saved yet, but you love them and you, you admire them and you want to spend time with them and you care for them and you want badly for them to be in the kingdom. 
And when Daniel is given the interpretation, he says, Oh, king, I wish this was about somebody else. I wish it was about somebody else, but it's about you. You're that great and mighty tree that provides shade. The shade is representative of how far and wide his kingdom stretches. But because of your pride, God is going to cut you down. But he's going to leave a stump and he's going to leave a gate around it. And he's going to protect your throne. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to become like a beast and you're going to eat grass in the field because you act like a beast. All the facts have been laid out for you and you won't come to the obvious conclusion that God is God and he is worthy to be praised. And so God will let you live as a beast and you will eat grass and people will mock you and you will be humbled. But at the end of the seven years, your health and your mind will be restored. And you would think that in the face of this, and after all the times that Daniel's been right about an interpretation, and after all the power Nebuchadnezzar has seen in Daniel's God, that he would immediately repent right there and cry out to God, can we skip the cutting down of the tree? I'll humble myself now, but he doesn't. Twelve months later, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and he's, he's talking to himself. You know, the self-talk we all do. After we finished weed whacking our acre in 1700s, my kingdom. <laughs> and that fire in Bear Valley came way too close to taking out my little kingdom. Boy, that put things in perspective. You find out in a hurry what's important to you. Do we have all four kids? Good. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? You can say tisk, tisk, tisk all you want, but you say this in your heart all the time. Admit it. It, it, it happens. Maybe not to this degree because you, you're not the emperor of a mighty empire. But how many of us have sprained a shoulder patting ourselves on the back? That's a metaphor. The first service doesn't laugh at the, at the, at the jokes. <laughs> get some donuts into you and some coffee. And so this time Nebuchadnezzar's humbled in a more personal way. While the word while the word was in the king's mouth, bragging on himself to himself, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. 
Nebuchadnezzar, you're only king because the true king has appointed you to be king. And again, before you pat yourself on your back for all the hard work and all of your accomplishments in life, remember you're only where you are today because God in His grace has determined this is exactly where I want you. And by the same token, if you find yourself in a place today of suffering and confusion and loss, you're only there today because God in His mercy and wisdom has determined that is the right place for you to be today. This is what ails each of us and ails our country today. All of this class warfare and race warfare because there's no big view of God and His sovereignty which leaves people to look around and say, why don't I have what they have? If there's no God, then whatever body and gifts and family and intelligence you've been given, that's it. And some people hit the genetic jackpot, and some people are big losers. And that's not fair, and somebody must pay. And this is what happens to a country that loses its view of God's sovereignty. And man believes he's big enough and powerful enough to play the role of God. And we get leaders, both locally and nationally and even internationally, trying to play the role of God. Perhaps we will meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. I can't say definitively because the New Testament doesn't say so, but it sure looks like true repentance comes to the house of Nebuchadnezzar. Here's Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, first-person testimony from his own mouth. Daniel records Nebuchadnezzar's own words. At that time, my reason returned to me, kind of reminds me of the prodigal son, and he came to his senses, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and the prodigal son was given a robe and a royal ring and sandals for his feet. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. That sure sounds like repentance to me. I hope to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Daniel chapter 5 gives us uh, more, more of these stories. Daniel chapter 6, right? The, the, uh, the lion's den. And then the rest of the book of Daniel, amazing prophecy about what's going to happen 
And many of those uh, prophecies have already come to pass with amazing accuracy. And again and again and again, the whole book of Daniel is giving us this enormous view of God that cannot be ignored. He is sovereign. He is in control. And it's what the Jews in exile needed to hear. Don't worry. I know you're in exile. It's part of God's plan. He will bring you back in 70 years It's all going according to God's plan. We will certainly meet Daniel and his three friends in heaven. That'll be exciting, right? Book of Hebrews and the Faith Hall of Fame. And what more shall I say for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, and shut the mouths of lions and quenched the power of fire. What do you think that's referring to? Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Escaped the edge of the sword from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. All these heroes of the faith point us to the true and living God. The God who's in charge of everything and the God who can deliver. All of these stories point us to the one and only hero, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say this, and we'll close here. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, because we have the testimony of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, even Nebuchadnezzar, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, all your fears, all the anxieties, all your human aspirations, All these things that get in the way of us worshiping God. All your accomplishments, all your failures. Your financial status, your health status. All these things become encumbrances. Lay them aside and especially lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look, if the hardest thing you'll ever have to endure, which is facing God Almighty on Judgment Day, has been taken care of you on the cross, then we can be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hey, whatever the world throws at us, we're not bowing the knee to your gods. I have a God who loves me. I know the God of the universe, and nothing else matters in light of that. Everything's small potatoes after that. Are they important potatoes? Yes. We still have to live life. We still have bills to pay. We still have children to raise. We still have hospital procedures, but at the end of the day, do you know God? Does he know you through faith in Jesus Christ? It's, it's all that matters. Father God, may this message cut through all the noise, all the distractions, all the things that encumber us, all the sin that entangles us, and may we keep the main thing the main thing. And may that be a compelling testimony to a world 
groping and stumbling around in darkness. May there be more Nebuchadnezzars out there who are humbled and come to declare that the Most High God is the King of kings and Lord of lords. To the glory of Jesus' name we pray, amen.